Support for this episode comes from Viator. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. That's why Viator has over 300,000 bookable experiences, so there's always something for everyone. They offer everything from simple tours to extreme adventures. Plus, Viator's travel experiences have millions of real traveler reviews, so you have the information you need to book the best activities for your trip. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. Hi, I'm Neil Patel, host of Decoder, my show about big ideas and other problems. Right now on Decoder, we're doing a mini-series about one of the biggest ideas that's creating some of the biggest problems around, generative AI. Our series dives deep into some of the most pressing issues surrounding generative AI, with expert Verge reporters covering the cutting-edge frontier of the industry. How could copyright lawsuits completely upend large language models and image generators? How big a problem is AI-generated misinformation for the 2024 election? And what kind of impact are AI chatbots having on human relationships? Decoder's AI series will help you understand what's going on, why, and where it might go from here. Tune in every Monday and Thursday for new episodes of Decoder wherever you get your podcasts. So, Matt, you're ready to get information? Ah, no. Oh, man. No, 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 no musical interludes here. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Dara Lind, uh, Jane Coaston, and we are... We're going to talk about Pete Buttigieg exactly, uh, but I, I, we thought that the sort of end of Pete Buttigieg's uh, presidential campaign was an interesting opportunity to kind of take stock of where LGBTQ politics is in America because it was a very historic moment. It was. To have a gay candidate. But also historic in the fact that numerous people who voted for him did not know he was gay, despite him being gay and married. And also, it was historic in its relative to everything else about Pete Buttigieg. Relative to that, it's unimportance. The fact that this is a gay married man who he and his husband campaigned across the country. We had Pete in the weeds. It was great. He was very nice. His husband is also very nice. But like when people talked about Mayor Pete and why they supported or opposed him, him being gay was like never mentioned. Right. Like I mean, even even more to the point, during a pre-election campaign that was explicitly about electability, much right. more than it was about any actual policy proposal or historical or like differences in candidates' records. Buttigieg ran a campaign on a very robust idea of what made him more electable than the rest of the field. And it was persuasive to a lot of voters, especially in Iowa, right. which is not known for being like the deepest blue state of the early states. And like not even despite the fact that he was gay, like it wasn't there wasn't a, oh, I think he's electable because he's young and he has a certain kind of rhetorical skill. But I'm worried that the gayness will be a problem right. in the even as there was that kind of, you know, reticence for some of the other, you know, there was some concern about, you know, Joe Biden's age, Bernie Sanders age, yeah. Bernie Sanders, Jewishness, Elizabeth Warren's, you know, Elizabeth Warren being a woman. 
even when some of those things were implicit, they were still there. And you didn't even see that kind of reticence of I'm worried that people less, quote unquote, you know, woke than I am are going to vote against this man because he's gay. It's and just it was it was non it was like it w- really was the dog that didn't bark. And further, I mean, if you if you look up the um, David Brookman and Jerome Kala uh, article on Vox uh, that stirred the pot about Bernie Sanders's electability. The, the headline conclusion there was about Bernie. Uh, but, the, but the survey result was that Pete was, I mean, he obviously did not win the Democratic nomination or even come all that close, but that among the general public, he had the highest favorable ratings and the best electability performance. And it's such a contrast to, like, obviously, Barack Obama proved to be a very successful politician and a highly electable presidential candidate. But his campaign from day one through to the day he left the White House was dogged by racialized controversy every step of the way and on both sides. I mean, he benefited from an unprecedented black turnout surge. Mm-hmm. Um, he's an iconic figure in African-American communities, but also I, from Hillary Clinton's primary campaign against him was there were constantly questions of racist dog whistles. There was a lot of well, people won't vote for a black guy. And is that you saying you wouldn't? Um, the Republican reaction, the birther stuff, Donald Trump's whole rise. And when Elizabeth Warren dropped out, right, there were like screams of anguish from mostly white professional women who had watched Warren lose, had watched Hillary Clinton lose, and are like, is our time ever going to come? And I didn't hear that from from even from Pete's gay fans, right? I mean, he had detractors among more left-wing activisty gay people. But like I I know lots of gay men in particular who were Buttigieg donors who were quite enthusiastic about his campaign. They wished he had won, but they weren't like personally crushed right. by his defeat. Because even though him being gay had been, I think for them personally, what it initially put him on their radar, it just wasn't significant to the way the campaign played out. It wasn't a topic. That speaks to something that's been interesting to observe as part of the LGBT community as it exists. And we can even get into what that even means. Because one of the challenges, I think for a lot of people, and I still have this moment, like when I was at the human rights campaign, um, I was a speechwriter. And I remember the day that the Obergefell decision came down because I had gotten married about a month and a half beforehand. And the day of that decision, my dad called me and afterwards and was like, oh, well, you could come back to Ohio now, which was adorable and also not going to happen. I'm sorry, Ohio. It's just not going to happen. But just the uh, but even in that time since 2015, 2015 is not that long ago, 2015 But in court decisions, and I think in the American understanding of marriage equality, was a million years ago. And even 2015, I mean, by the time Obergefell came out, like, it was more of a capstone than it was a kind of path-burning decision. Right. Because the 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 assumption was that America had already been won over to to marriage equality. The opinion change that had taken place even since 2008, even since 2011, when Obama said that he'd kind of had, he'd changed his mind on the issue. The opinion change was massive. But I think for a lot of people, their understanding of 
what do LGBT people want, was largely based, especially for people outside of the, that world, it was based on like, okay, marriage, like that makes sense. And I think part of when Andrew Sullivan and a host of other people, generally gay men, were talking about marriage as an issue in the 1990s, when it seemed unimaginable, absolutely unimaginable. You were just out of the very nadir of the AIDS epidemic. Um, you know, in the early 1990s, you were starting to get the approval of antiretrovirals like AIDS. The height of the AIDS epidemic. Though. Well, I mean, the nadir of the panic and shame and death that took place. I was just rereading something about uh, the AIDS crisis and the degree to which it was not just about LGBT people, but it was about just AIDS and the pressure that that put on the, on the community, specifically on gay men. And to for people in the early 1990s to start considering something beyond that, a life beyond that, you start seeing people talking about marriage, but it is an effort that is believed to be something that's kind of like, this is a part of a larger fight. This is a part of a fight for full equality and full inclusion. And then for, I think, a lot of people observing, they were like, well, you won marriage, so now what? It was really interesting because right after the marriage decision came out, I remember that at HRC, there were a lot of people who kind of were like, you know, I've been working on this issue for 15 years and now I can finally move on to something else. So some people left the organization to go do something else. There was kind of an idea of like, well, we did that. And then you have a lot of other people who are trans for whom or who are queer or for whom you know, marriage was not the be-all and end-all of the fight for full inclusion and full equality, who were like, hang on a second, like, yeah, we won the marriage decision, but one, you know, a Supreme Court ruling does not a sweeping change of the American electorate make, but also LGBT people are still at risk of being fired in more than 20 states in this country for being LGBT. Like, the, the idea of what the whole fight was over I think, really different from person to person. And I think something you see when people, you know, when you see kind of left-leaning queer people talking about Mayor Pete, I'll link some pieces in the show notes that talk about this issue, is that when you are not all under the thumb of a singular type of oppression, it turns out that you don't have that much in common sometimes with other people within your community when you don't have the commonality of being like, well, these people all hate us. There are still people who are deeply, passionately homophobic and transphobic. And I think transphobia and the impact that that and the impact of hate and prejudice against trans people is an issue that the LGB community has not handled particularly well. But for a lot of people, if you, you know, Larry Kramer and the people who got involved in organizations like ACT UP, there was a sense that AIDS necessitated political involvement. Let That's me play host. Yes. Who is Larry Kramer and what is ACT UP? Larry Kramer is a longtime gay rights activist from the 1980s and um, early 1990s. And ACT UP was a radical gay rights group that was fighting for funding and fighting for recognition of the impact of HIV AIDS. Um, and I recommend How to Survive a Plague. Yes. yes. Uh, and you will learn more. Yes, and you will be very sad. Because the degree to which... That was just such a shambolic sham. But the idea that this is a moment for political movement mm -hmm. and political movement on these specific issues. But if you look back at the goals of early HRC or the Victory Fund or early homosexual political mobilizing in the 1980s, their goals are like, 
we would like it to be okay for gay people to be teachers because there were efforts on a state-by-state basis, including in Florida and California, to basically make it illegal for gay people to be teachers. We want gay people to be able to receive their partners in hospitals. Mm -hmm. And just the immense progress has been, I I can't even use words to describe it, how much that change has impacted my life and the lives of so many other people. But you do kind of have a moment of like, okay, like, now what do we want? But what's also been interesting about it is not just progress, because we've seen rapid progress or change on a lot of issues, but is the relative lack of post hoc resistance to these changes, right, which have all been resisted at the front end, but there has been no significant backlash, right? There is no move to undo marriage equality. Right. To the point where like, like, don't ask, don't tell, which I think also and this is especially relevant if we're talking about the Buttigieg campaign, because if you do the chronology here, you know, Pete Buttigieg served in the military when he himself was closeted, at least, you know, in public during the time of don't ask, don't tell. And it really does say something that he was then able to use his military background and his I'm a member of a, you know, stable, loving household with my husband. Mm -hmm. And both of these were seen as all-American credentials when, in fact, a decade earlier, they would have cut against each other. But it also, it it makes the continued political mobilization difficult. When Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed, that was a difficult legislative fight. But after it was repealed, when Republicans regained unified control of government in 2017, absolutely nobody thought. Okay, Donald Trump is going to sign a law reinstating the don't ask, don't tell policy. And, I think and there was no consideration no. of doing that. Even like Trump never tried to bring back Medicare privatization, but there were articles about it. People asked Paul Ryan about it's, it. It's still he, a prospect for the second he, term. He floated you know? it. Yeah. Like it is in the air. The conservative movement clearly would still like to do that, but they have concerns about the politics. It's not that there are no homophobic people in America, but there was quite genuinely no organized political movement to take gay and lesbian soldiers back out of the military. And so it's... I mean, they they just refocused on trans soldiers being like, that's the real issue here, which has been a real hilarious moment to see, unless you are, what, roughly four and a half years old and Uh listening to this podcast, in which case I'm very impressed. Like, you remember the time before Obergefell when we heard a lot specifically from, like, social conservatives that marriage was, like, the fight of our time. Mm -hmm. People like Maggie Gallagher and Brian Brown became household names in certain households for their opposition to marriage equality. And June 29th, 2015, suddenly it's like, oh, we've moved on. We're libertarians on this but I mean, issue, but, but the real focus but it, is trans but it's, people. But it's essentially been a route. I mean, I I, I don't want to downplay, no. obviously, the real problems facing trans people. But in contrast to other political issues, it has just consisted of the right falling back to new, more defensible positions with no – no counteroffensives. You know what I mean? There's no— Yeah, and th- even th- the concept—I think that the counteroffensives, if I had to make the, the argument, is the issues of religious freedom. 
And so you've seen conservatives being like, okay, we're going to take this to the courts as they view LGBT people having to take it to the courts. Mm -hmm. They think that Lambda Legal and a host of other groups basically took marriage on state by state. A Supreme Court case in Iowa ruled that marriage equality was legal in like 2009. And so they basically like, okay, we're going to have to take the same strategy. So that's where you're seeing kind of the focus on these specific um, cake decorators and things like that, the religious freedom argument. Right. But it has been interesting to see that even for the farthest right, the idea that we would see a challenge to a Obergefell or even you know, the return of a sweeping don't ask, don't tell policy. Because I think that some people don't realize that don't ask, don't tell was a compromise. Right. Don't ask, don't tell was like the best possible option Bill Clinton could think of at the time because the alternative was what existed for about 50 years, which was the drumming out of thousands of gays and lesbians from... And suspected gays and lesbians. And suspected right. gays and lesbians from the military and from civil service more widely. Um, read about the Lavender Panic if you haven't. Um, There's a book called The Lavender Scare that's super, super useful yes. about also this and about mid-century Washington generally. And Frank Kameny, hero. So what we're describing here in an extreme shorthand is kind of the white-collar roots of right. the gay liberation movement. I think that there's been a very... For many reasons, some of which have to deal with like the kind of iconic nature of it, some of which have to deal with the politics of it. The gay movement has claimed Stonewall as like the birthplace, you right. know, like the, the moment where gay rights was born. And it's true that that's the moment when what had been a fairly white collar, moderately assimilationist movement discovered a radical like th that there was a p possible possibility for like politically engaged radicalism. But building off this kind of these time, which was coexistent with the Red Scare, not coincidentally, yeah. of like Washington bureaucrats who were gay or, gay or lesbian or who were just like, uh, you know, worried that they might come off that way, having to fear for their careers, because if you're in the civil service, you don't really have a lot of non-government options. Right. And the government is like really trying very hard to root out any homosexuals, both for like, you know, red-blooded Americanness reasons and under the logic that if you have any secrets, the Soviet Union will be able to turn you as a spy because it can blackmail you. But, so you yeah. have these otherwise very typical, if you're a listener to the weeds, you probably, if you don't know somebody who works for the federal government, you can picture the kind of white collar civil servants yeah. who work for the federal government going, gee, it would be really nice if we were able to just live our lives like normal people, like the normal people yeah. that we are. And so you have this early organizing against wrongful termination of employment, but also just kind of for dignity and the suit wearing, you know, orderly protest uh, mold of the early right. civil rights protests because it was based in the same like we should just be recognized as normal people. And then with Stonewall, this idea of a more radical queer politics kind of breaks into the discourse as well. And, and those it, two strands are kind of present to this day in the yeah, question of, you know, is Pete Buttigieg a trailblazer because he's a gay man or is he a, you know, white dude who went to Harvard in a stable household and the fact that that household has another man in it is like not actually super relevant to right. our time? And I think it's it's important that this split and this divide has been within the community. Um, I wrote a piece about it uh, when I was at MTV, but the Mattachine Society, which began in 1950 and was kind of the first gay rights group, they themselves were split by this very question because a lot of the members, while they were basically accused of being all rampant communists, a lot of people within it were just like, were basically like 
normal, staid, straight-laced But importantly, others were, in fact, communists. Others were. And they were saying, like, no. And it all came down to this question of, um, and I've got a quote from a professor I spoke with who was saying that, you know, many members of the society were like, you know, they want homosexuality to be viewed as a natural variation in human sexuality, nothing more, nothing less. And then you had other members who were like, no, queer people are different. We should do things differently. Marriage is not for us. This is not for us. And that divide's been around for 60, 70 years now. So let's take a break. And then I want to talk about solidarity and sort of how it plays into this. Yes. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. Trying to keep up with the political news cycle in 2023 can sometimes feel like staring into a black hole of information, where hundreds of thousands of opinions and facts get sucked in and distorted. We know it's a lot, even if you're listening to The Weeds every week. You all know, in order for the average person to stay capital I informed, it can help to find and listen to sources who are working to cut through the noise and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. Not Another Politics Podcast tries to do just that. It was launched and produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. It's not a pundits and politicians podcast. Rather, it takes a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but here are just a few that you can listen to right now. Whether or not ousting incumbents improves the economy, the extent to which white Americans favor white politicians, and what happens when Fox News viewers tune into CNN instead for a month. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. I love hosting people, so I know that having family or friends stay the night might seem like a great idea until you find yourself scrambling for extra cushions. Or worse, scrounging up an air mattress only to realize it has a hole in it. Well, you won't need to worry about any of that with Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa. Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa can make your guests feel at home. It's an everyday sofa that easily converts into a queen-size bed that they say comfortably sleeps two people. The Shift Sleeper Sofa has layers of memory foam, therapeutic comfort foam, and a supportive core foam to provide an amazing night's sleep for your guests. And like all of Burroughs Furniture, it's a breeze to get in your home with a painless online shopping experience and free shipping to your door. You can check out Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa and all their furniture at burrow.com slash weeds and get 15% off your Burrow order when you do. That's burrow.com slash weeds for 15% off your Burrow purchase. Burrow.com slash weeds. So I actually think that the divide between is queerness different and the more assimilationist like variation in human yeah. sexuality school does tell us something about the kind of place of trans people and trans politics inside the LGBT movement. Like it's really wild to me because as somebody growing up in a fairly conservative part of America, like in the pregame, in the right? Yeah, in the pregame marriage era, like my first exposure to transness was through the literature of mainstream gay rights groups like HRC and like yeah. their insistence on LGBT as the nature of their movement. It didn't seem super obvious or natural to me, not necessarily knowing the history, because it seemed that the concerns of trans people would necessarily be different from concerns based on sexual orientation. And like you learn, you know, once you understand the strain of LGBT politics that 
treats queerness as the binding force, then you start understanding how people could feel not just like a social, we're all in this together solidarity, but like there is something naturally similar in us. But like, if you don't see that as a thing, then your only options are are to say, look, these really are separate questions and separate movements. And like, no shade to you, but like, I will support you, but not as I would support myself. Or to say, look, solidarity requires that I see this as part of my struggle and that I I have a theory of change that says that if your rights are threatened, mine are intrinsically going to be threatened yes, as well. Yes, and I think and that so I we've th- seen yeah. that. We've seen that because I'm saying we because I feel very much that this applies to me and my family mm-hmm. um, because it does. But we've seen time and time again that at a certain point, like it's not as if when trans people are threatened or trans identity is threatened that they're like, okay. These people are bad, but you're fine. No, none of us are. No, no, like the people who think that transness isn't real or is some sort of illness or something like that, they are not looking at Pete and Chasen's marriage and thinking like, that's fantastic. That's not what they're thinking. All of this to me, it seems, I mean, I, I so I staunchly believe in cross-group solidarity while recognizing that I've thought about this a lot as a gay married person because there were a lot of people. Um, there's a website against equality that has a ton of writings on this from a far left perspective about how marriage should not be the goal and how marriage is in the way of the goal of full. Not, it's, it's not equality exactly, but full expression. Mm-hmm. And I recognize that. But also the fact that I could I could make the decision to get married or not or just like straight people who just, you know, who are like, we've been together for 20 years, but we're not going to get married. I also wanted to be able to hypothetically say that, though I, I got married real quick because But th- th- they're, they're also just ideological concepts in play, right? Yes. So like, so I, I grew up uh, in Greenwich Village in a, a gay neighborhood at a time of a lot of gay political militancy, largely around HIV AIDS, but extending to many other topics. Um, I am not gay. I did not have gay family, uh, but we we knew lots of gay people, neighbors, things like that. Uh, I was Jewish and I went to a reform synagogue in the area. It was called the Village Temple. Um, there were many gay congregants there, but also there was an ideology of left-wing reform Jewishness, which held that Jewish interests in the United States were inherently tied to principles of secular government and to the vision of the civil rights movement, and that at a time in the 90s in New York, there was considerable tension between Orthodox Jews and the Dinkins administration around racial issues. There were various controversies around ACT UP and gay ACT activism. And the view of that congregation that I went to was that we were all in it together on an ideological level. As we as we talked about in the anti-Semitism mm-hmm. uh, episode, yeah. the Orthodox community just, just like has a different view of this, right? Like uh, on all kinds of different levels, in part stemming from the fact that like being theologically traditionalistic, uh, extending solidarity to LGBT people doesn't make sense to them. And, and 
a, an alliance with evangelical Christians and a kind of corporatist group rights ma- makes sense to them. But like the strand of religious tradition and the place and time that I grew up in promulgated a, a certain vision of this. And it, it's interesting to look at Andrew Sullivan, who is such an intellectually influential figure in the marriage equality movement and is somebody who always said that he was a conservative. Right. right. Who was gay and who had this view. Uh, but at the height of the struggle, he often seemed like he was a fake conservative. You, you know what I mean? Like like he was saying, like, I'm a conservative, but because like he had all these left wing opinions, like not just about marriage equality, but about how the Bush administration's torture regime was terrible, about how Barack Obama was good, about how there was a Christianist ideology infecting the American right. And he would always say, just as Bill Kristol today would say that his anti-Trump shtick reflects true conservatism, Andrew said that his thing was the true conservative vision. And what's been interesting is that since marriage equality was achieved, Andrew has become a much more conventional conservative, right? Right. As the conservative movement has not only accepted, uh, I I can't even pronounce Obergefell. Is that right? Obergefell. Obergefell. The conservative movement has not only accommodated itself to that, right? But like uh, at one point, um, Jesse Helms, Senate Republicans wouldn't let Bill Clinton appoint an openly gay ambassador to Luxembourg, which is like, who cares? Now the Trump administration wants to slot in a wildly unqualified gay man to be the director of national intelligence. And like to the extent that conservatives have a problem with that. It is not it's, because it's about him gay. being wildly unqualified and they don't even have a big problem with that. Right. So it, it's now it's like if if you are gay but are willing to be a conservative, the conservative movement is happy to have you on the team. And Andrew is increasingly happy to be on the team. And he's incredibly critical of the trans rights movement, of quote-unquote wokeness in general, right? It's a, it's a real politics of, of anti-solidarity. And he feels they're different from my 90s reformed Jewish ideological concepts, but there is a modern-day ideological concept of solidarity, which holds that gay rights, trans rights, women's rights, immigrant rights are all part of a, a seamless web that we all need to fight together. And like Andrew is a thinker and a writer, right? Like he is he is opposed to that. Like it is a very much a like we have successfully advanced our particularistic claim. And like that's that. I mean, I want to kind of dig into the the modern solidarity that you point to, because I think this is to a certain extent, what we've been talking about in the gay rights kind of like the after marriage reckoning in the LGBT movement has come at the same time as there's been a turn, especially among younger progressives, especially among kind of like movementy types, mm-hmm. away from the way that the Democratic Party and the progressive movement were thought of 20, 30 years ago, which was that they were this big tent of like particular interest groups that all had their particular agendas and like had to band together to get it, somebody into power who would then like advance things right. on all of these different yeah, fronts. A, a log rolling coalition. Yeah, yeah right. exactly. And like what that actually led to was a massive traffic jam legislatively at the beginning of any Democratic administration as everybody was like, OK, so the fact that, you know, in in 2012, Latino voters were given initial credit for Barack Obama's re-election victory, and that meant immigration reform would go first in 2013. <laughs> like, that's a clear cause and effect arrow that I think 
is that I don't think exists anymore in the internal politics of the Democratic Party and uh, like on the left more generally, because there is a generation at this point of people who have come up in the idea that our struggles are intrinsically connected to each other. And so both looking specifically at policy intersectionalities and understanding, for example, the ways in which like healthcare access has to be an LGBT issue because, for example, of gender affirmation surgeries mm-hmm. and, you know, that sort of thing being covered, that home housing has to be an LGBT issue right. because of the probability that a young LGBT, like that a, an LGBT teenager, if they come out to their parents, will get kicked off, kicked out and end up on the streets. That like both both these kind of specific recognitions of hey this is going to be especially helpful to us because of our other identities but also in this broader sense that if they come after one of us they'll come after all of us and right. frankly sometimes this has been expressed in the Trump era and like ways that are in practice anti-solidaristic like there have been a lot of white women and white gay men who have kind of assumed that they're the things that they consider most right. important are what is what is most vulnerable and not necessarily like doing the 360 and looking at you know i i definitely i i know you know, do like people in in the Fire Island scene who are like wildly frustrated at the extent to which like anti politics has become a new normal. Right. Because you know, if you're not necessarily, if you think that you're going to be threatened if something really bad happens just because you're marginalized, and then you're not threatened, you may think that no one is threatened. But there's also a way that it has become a very powerful tool for you know, and we were discussing this a few weeks ago with regards to immigration activists, you know, climate activists. LGBT activists, like a lot of these are in practice the same people now. They're showing up to the same stuff. They understand the agenda to be the same. And that has been a very powerful kind of political movement binding agent that's also made it very hard to pick off any part of that coalition. You can pick off members of a group that sees itself as one particular agenda because then you can co-opt parts of that agenda or you can just moot it as an issue as conservatives have done with like with same sex marriage. What you can't do is persuade a generation of activists that thinks that gay rights mean nothing if you don't respect the idea that black lives matter. You can't, like, give them Richard Grinnell and Milo Yiannopoulos (laughs) and say, hey, we love gay dudes. (laughs) Right. When I was at HRC, um, I was there during um, Ferguson and the reaction to the death of Michael Brown. And, it, you know, we were debating about putting out a statement, and we did. And in the response, we learned something important, which was that, like, um, we had a lot of members who appeared to be gay cops and were very mad at us. And I think that that's something, one, one of the challenges, and I think Matt has talked about this before, is that sometimes when you see, like, these big organizations, the people at those organizations and the people who are members of that organization are two different kinds of people. But I think a larger issue is... We have not yet, and I think that this is a challenge in the media and just a challenge of visibility in general. For example, the state with the most same-sex couples raising children is Mississippi. Roughly 25% of same-sex couples in the state of Mississippi are raising children. And that's a massive issue because, uh, you know, Mississippi and a lot of other states have had issues with adoption laws that mean that a birth parent and their partner may not have the same legal relationship with their children, which could get very ugly in the case of a divorce or in other scenarios, especially, you know, with regard to health care. That's a big issue. And so 
I think that there is a sense with some gay people that, like, you know, marriage was their fight and now that's been achieved and they're out and everything else in their lives is okay. But, you know, with respect to how they and the people they care about are viewed. But for a lot of other people within this coalition, that's not true. Homophobia and transphobia don't particularly care about how much money you have or where you live or what you do. And I think it's worth recognizing that that solidarity, not necessarily having the same interests because that's impossible, but recognizing that the people who come for some of us would come for the rest of us if they could. And I think that, you know, that's something I I very much believe and I think about a lot in terms of my understanding of my place in this community, which is I'm a very staid queer, you know, I'm a stay-at-home queer. But I think that the people who came before me, the people who were members of the Mattachine Society and the people who yelled at members of the Mattachine Society, all of those people were part of this community that recognized their both singular nature and the opposition that they faced. And I think that that's still true today. Let's take a break. Do a white paper? Yeah. Support for this episode comes from Viator. Sure, a good souvenir is always fun, but it's the experiences that people love the most about traveling. When you get back home, that t-shirt might fade and that snow globe might break, but it's those once-in-a-lifetime memories that will last. Viator is a website and app where you can book travel experiences like architectural sightseeing, snorkeling excursions, sunset cruises, and so much more. With Viator, you can reserve everything from simple tours to thrilling adventures with over 300,000 bookable experiences in 190 countries. Whether you're a foodie, a history buff, or an adrenaline junkie, there's something for everyone. Plus, Viator's travel experiences have millions of real traveler reviews, so you can have the information you need to book the best activities for your trip. When you book a travel experience with Viator, there's always flexibility and support with free cancellation, payment options, and 24-7 service. Make memories that will last forever with Viator. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. Hi, I'm Neil Patel, host of Decoder, my show about big ideas and other problems. Right now on Decoder, we're doing a mini-series about one of the biggest ideas that's creating some of the biggest problems around, generative AI. Our series dives deep into some of the most pressing issues surrounding generative AI, with expert Verge reporters covering the cutting-edge frontier of the industry. How could copyright lawsuits completely upend large language models and image generators? How big a problem is AI-generated misinformation for the 2024 election? And what kind of impact are AI chatbots having on human relationships? Decoder's AI series will help you understand what's going on, why, and where it might go from here. Tune in every Monday and Thursday for new episodes of Decoder wherever you get your podcasts. We have today Get Information or get information, the effects of high information environments on legislative elections. So, Matt, you're ready to get information? Uh, no. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> no, 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 no musical interludes here. Uh, this is a good paper. I, I think this gets at an intuition that a lot of people have, right. which is that politics has become more nationalized and that this maybe has to do with the media. And it tests in an interesting way. Uh, they look at the sort of rollout of broadband internet in the early aughts 
And what he shows is that there's broad trends that we have seen in American politics during this period that relate to a decline in ticket splitting. So you're you're more likely to vote at the bottom of the ballot the same way you do at the top. And relatedly, a decline in incumbency advantage, right? So that th- it used to be that like you might decide Donald Trump is bad, but you still really like and respect Susan Collins uh, because she's been in your community doing this, that, and the other thing. And we have now seen fewer and fewer people able to pull off that kind of Susan Collins-like politics. It may be the end of the road for Susan Collins. Um, And so we know that's been happening. And what Trussler shows is that those changes come first to the places that get fast internet access first, um, which suggests that it is the changes in media diet that are driven by digitalization that drive that sort of increasing nationalization of everything. Yeah, they reference that people with better access to broadband are less likely to view local news media, Mm -hmm. which I think that you see just anecdotally in people for whom, I mean, that also, one, you're seeing a decline of local news media anyway, but also as he discusses in this, you know, they're thinking about content that is predominantly about national politics. They're looking towards the New York Times, they're looking towards Vox, they're looking towards outlets with a national viewpoint. And I think one way you saw this that that is outside the scope of, of his research, right, but is that there used to be like tons of conventional wisdom built up around the Iowa caucuses and their linkage to ethanol politics. Mm-hmm. And it just didn't come up in 2020. Candidates had Iowa-related strategies. The peculiar demographics of the Iowa caucuses were a really big deal in the sense that it's both whiter and also younger than you see in a normal primary. But, like, nobody was talking about – people were talking about the specific demographic composition of Iowa, but not about the specific situation in Iowa. There was no big ethanol gotchas. People didn't have like odes to high fructose corn syrup. And even, it just wasn't and even like thing. the demographics of Iowa, like, yes, you know, people were talking about the the youngness of the caucus goers, but not in the sense of like, oh, that means that there's going to be a lot more pressure on candidates to talk about student loan forgiveness, rather in the sense of we know that various people have various theories of what candidate will be most nationally viable, depending on their own identities. Yeah. Like it turned into, okay, we were, we're just going to have a statewide focus group of who do you think is the most nationally viable candidate? Right. And, he, and you know, so so Trussler mentions this this old idea in political science uh, from, from a guy named uh, Richard, I think, Fenno, and it's called homestyle yeah. uh, politicians. And you're down to a point where of nationally prominent figures, right? Lisa Murkowski and uh, Joe Manchin are like the last of the homestyle politicians, right? right? Like yeah. they are weird. They have of personalistic loyalties, you know, that that yeah. are not about national politics. They out- They don't always get what they want, but they always go in asking for yeah, it. Yeah, and they're, and they're really trying. Like Lisa Murkowski, anytime you see her in the national news, it's almost always because of something to do with Alaska. I mean, which she represents, right? You, you would think that that would be, but that used to be very normal, right? It used to be that a guy like Cory Gardner, who's like out there repping a bluish state, needs to run for re-election, would be talking constantly about peculiar Colorado-related situations, right? You know, like ski resorts or or who knows. And and it's just most of politics is not like that anymore, very plausibly, because not that many people are reading locally focused news. And, And this just sort of 
instruments it in, you know, a, a kind of more clever, more rigorous way than my kind of hand waving. And what's interesting is that the political system, I think, to function as we sort of think of it functioning requires more of that localism and more of that home-style politics, right? Because if you had more ticket splitting, you would have more cross-pressured members, you would have more people who might say, hmm, what Trump was up to with his hotels, like, that doesn't seem so right to me, right? And, and like, Congress as a body that has its own concerns separate from partisanship. But if voters only care about national partisanship, then, of course, the elected officials will also only care about national partisanship. And all this stuff about institutional prerogatives and separation of powers and, like, what's corrupt and what isn't kind of goes out the window because it's just, you know, like, it's it's just team sport on Capitol Hill. The other phenomenon that I think this paper really brings into focus for me is, like, we occasionally talk about the demise of earmarks as both a, you know, cause and effect of the nationalization of congressional politics, because, like, that is an easy thing you could deliver locally to your district or to certain stakeholders who, like, happen to be overrepresented in your district and that you could then get rounds of earned media off of. Not So it's interesting to think about the chronology of this because the demise of earmarks happens really as this or like even to, toward the end of the widespread adoption of broadband internet. So the benefit disappears. The benefit of having local earned media out of earmarks disappears. And then the earmarks themselves disappear. And then the thing that somebody can go into your office and ask you for that's different from what a similarly situated position like Instead of a major state university needing to lobby you to get like a lab there, they're going to be lobbying you for exactly the same things that all other public right. universities are lobbying you for. So the major players in terms of who is going to be trying to seek influence and giving financial support to any given congressional candidate now very much less from district to district because what they can get doesn't matter as much. And, and what they can get doesn't matter as much because the member of Congress isn't going to do something just to get a few nice minutes on a local news broadcast at a ribbon-cutting ceremony. Right. I, I think something else that this gets into that I found fascinating, because you mentioned Manchin and Murkowski, this paper gets into the incumbency advantage, mm -hmm. yes. which is that you know when you're in office, it's easier to stay in office. And it gets, does broadband internet, does access to broadband internet, and does that nationalization of information decrease the incumbency advantage? And it found that, yes, it does not, as it says, attenuate to zero. But the you know, when you go to the ballot box, as it po points out, without very specific localized information on how you the mayor of your city or how this city council member has performed, but you are doing so, you are going to the ballot box by thinking. I need to vote for a Democrat because I oppose Donald Trump or I need to vote for a Republican to stand up for Donald Trump. And it's interesting because you're starting to see um, in national and state level politics how closely people are linking themselves to national figures. Obviously, Alabama is a very specific situation, mm -hmm. but we're in the midst of a runoff election between former bad college football coach Tommy Tuberville and uh, Jeff Sessions. And the entire campaign is who loves Trump more? Prove it right now. And so it's fascinating to see that that incumbency advantage, which I think in a lot of areas, you, you have people like the late John Dingle, who served the area of Ann Arbor, Michigan and elsewhere for 40 odd years. 
I, I will be interested to see as this as we move forward, how much does that change? What what does the era of long-time politicos from a specific area who represent a specific district because they do things for those specific districts, does that start to change? And I, I think another thing is that this nationalization changes the meaning of the malapportionment of the Senate, mm-hmm. right? That what it used to mean was that the concrete material interests of low population uh, rural states, particularly on the plains, were overrepresented in Congress. And so the most concrete manifestation of that is that the federal government runs a fairly large program to subsidize the production of staple agricultural crops, right? And it does not similarly subsidize fruit and vegetable cultivation. And that's because fruit and vegetable cultivation is concentrated in just Florida and California, which have low Senate representation, and uh, staple grains are spread across a lot of low population states. And so, like, that wasn't great. You know, it's like you ask any expert, like, is this a good idea? And they would say, no, it's a waste of money. It's unhealthy. Uh, Was it like a huge deal? No. You know what I mean? Like, it it just, it was something. It's like people from the Corn Belt, like, they wanted corn. And so they got it. And it was no, you know, people could get on their high horse about it. But like, it wasn't, it it just wasn't a big deal. Now that politics has become more national, more symbolic, more dematerialized, What it means is that the ideological worldview of rural white people is greatly overrepresented in national politics. It's very hard for Democrats to be competitive in those places at all. They can't just outbid the Republicans in terms of of local goodies. And you don't have the cross pressure between, on the one hand, we like handouts to rural areas, but also Republicans are like opposed to the government doing things. And so it, it, it's it's very different. It's now like conservatism is overrepresented in the Senate rather than rural interests. And it, it's become a much more, I think, problematic thing that the, the dog hasn't quite yet barked, but we're set up for an eventual situation in which Democrats win a landslide election and Republicans just have a majority in the Senate. And like nothing can happen. And there's a a national political uh, loggerhead. Whereas in the past, a Democratic landslide would have just elected a lot of random Plains Democrats who would show up and say like, well, we need essential air service subsidies. Uh, But like the government would still go on. And now, you know, it's, it's not clear that it does because people don't really care about their local issues. Right. It's also been weird to see the... I don't want to say like victim blaming, but like there's been a certain amount of focus on the end point of this process, like reporting in fairly conservative communities themselves about like, oh, these people who would benefit from public services still don't like public services. Or conversely, these people generally don't like public services, but when it's their public services, they like and defend them. The second situation isn't like an unusual aberration. It's how people normally function. It's how voters normally function. It's how politicians have often functioned. The difference is now that the politicians are cross-pressured against adopting the wishes of their constituents in like the particular context of, oh, I guess I need this because it would help my district, because in general, they've been elected to defend against this sort of thing. And they know that if they continue to hew to the party line, that's the best like and and their party continues to do well, that will help their you know, that'll help their political career much more than trying to buck their party and hoping that they'll stay afloat. So it's just I think it's worth thinking less about like how do in this particular instance and I this is 
contrary where I end up uh, generally. So maybe I should be thinking about it more. But in this instance, it seems less useful to think about how are voters living out their ideologies or not, or like what are voters asking their politicians to do, and more about who are politicians listening to and how do they see their roles in terms of representing an ideology versus representing a coalition versus representing a polity. Yeah. And I think that that's a that's a big shift that we aren't quite entirely prepared for. And I also think that that nationalization of politics, it impacts who runs for office. Um, You've seen organizations like run for something, recruiting people to run uh, at the local level, generally kind of left leaning or progressive candidates. And it's interesting to see, and you know, you know, we've seen this so many times in special elections, where there will be a specific candidate who gets a ton of national support, and then they lose terribly, and people are confused as to why. And then you look at the district itself, and you're like, oh, this person was entirely unrepresentative of the district, or didn't even live in the district, or something like that. And so I think it's it's going to be it's going to take a while to see how politics and political science eventually catches up to this overarching change that's taken place. Well, right. be part of the problem by obsessively listening to the weeds, Yay. recommending it to all your friends, getting into the Facebook group where you can ignore uh, local issues in exactly. favor of big picture national concepts, uh, dissolve your particularistic identities <laughs> into a undifferentiated ideological maw. Yeah. Uh, we, we, we love you all. Uh, thanks to Jeff Geld and Malachi Brodus. Thanks to our sponsors and the weeds. We'll be back on Friday. Hi, I'm Neil Patel, host of Decoder, my show about big ideas and other problems. Right now on Decoder, we're doing a mini-series about one of the biggest ideas that's creating some of the biggest problems around, generative AI. Our series dives deep into some of the most pressing issues surrounding generative AI, with expert Verge reporters covering the cutting-edge frontier of the industry. How could copyright lawsuits completely upend large language models and image generators? How big a problem is AI-generated misinformation for the 2024 election? And what kind of impact are AI chatbots having on human relationships? Decoder's AI series will help you understand what's going on, why, and where it might go from here. Tune in every Monday and Thursday for new episodes of Decoder wherever you get your podcasts.